when I was pastoring in Ripley, we got a call from several guys in town asking if we would host an adult men's church basketball league. We were one of the only churches in that community that had a gym, and so we talked it through and figured out some things that absolutely will host it. And, and so we, we were getting a team ready to play. And uh, it's always dangerous when you're a pastor and you join a recreational church league, especially if you're competitive. And I, at the time, this is 10 years ago, I was 27 years old and still thought I could play. And so we got out there and we started playing. And, and I, I, you know, growing up, I was never the best athlete among my friends, but I could hold my own in games and could play decently. And, and every once in a while... I would hit one of those streaks that, you know, professional athletes call it being in the zone. I I could hit one of those in baseball and could really hit the ball or in basketball and could shoot. And and I was always one of those guys that liked to stand around the three-point line and shoot from there. And So in the church league basketball game, I remember in particular, it started off just unbelievable. I mean, second possession down the floor, I got the ball at the top of the key, uh, and decided I, I would try to drive, and a guy set a screen for me and drove to the basket, put it in, no problem. Fourth time down the court, I, I was just standing around the three-point line. We threw the ball in. The guy saw me open. He threw it to me. I hit a three-point shot. Suddenly, I've got five points. Now, just to let you know, I scored 25 points the entire season. So five points in the first four possessions is good. And we came down the third time, and I was feeling it. And there's this guy, I mean, he wouldn't guard me very closely. And at this point, I have believed the grandeur in my mind that this guy ought to be paying more attention to me. And I looked at him, squared up with him, was past the three-point line. And I, never done this in my life, between my legs dribbled, picked up the ball, and hit a fadeaway three-point shot. That deserves a woo. When you... You look at me, I know you think master athlete, but that happened, all right? And so as the shot goes through, I am really feeling it. I remember jogging back down the court and my head just bobbing like, yeah. And the guy said to me, the guy that was guarding me said to me, says, you're feeling it tonight. I said, yeah, I am. He said, we'll see how that goes. I had eight points by the fifth possession of the game. I finished with eight points. The guy that I was guarding and was guarding me finished with 50. I had four shots blocked the rest of the game. And it was almost as if he said, you think you're pretty good. Let me show you what good is. Now, I did not realize, literally, I was going up against a scoring champ from NAIA Basketball. We shouldn't allow those kind of people in our church league, all right? And in a moment, I realized I was in a league that was completely different than him. Now, now maybe you haven't experienced that personally, the personal humiliation of something like that, but you ever been someone somewhere and you see someone do something that is just so much better than anything you've ever seen that it absolutely amazes you? I mean, keeping with the basketball thing, I remember, how many of you know who a guy named Tony Delk is? Anybody know that name? The guy who played for Kentucky basketball back under Rick Pitino. He played NBA basketball. And I remember in Dyersburg, he played for the uh, one of our rival high schools. And he came to town. 
And I remember distinctly watching him come down, and we were against, we were the team that was going to show him what it really meant to play basketball. We were going to stop him, and he scored about 70 that night. And by the end of the game, the Dyersburg student section is cheering every time he scores, because it was just like, we, this is unbelievable. Two weeks ago, or actually last Saturday night, um, I had the opportunity to go to the Opry. Now, I've only been to the Opry twice in my life. The last time I went to the Opry before last Saturday night, I was soaking wet from the Old Mill Scream. You know, remember that from Opryland? It's been a while, all right? And we went last Saturday night, and we were backstage, and we were there, and the featured performer of the night was a girl named Carrie Underwood. And when she sang, it was just like, this is another level. I mean, everybody did great singing. We had a good time. It was it was a big celebration. Jim Ed Brown celebrated his 50th year anniversary, 50th anniversary for being on the opera. Everybody else was great. But when she sang, it was like it was a completely different level. Well, what does all that have to do with prayer? One of my favorite questions in all of Scripture comes in Luke. Don't turn to Luke. We're actually going to turn to Matthew. But in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One of the disciples comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, could you teach us to pray? Are these guys that have been around prayer before? Yeah. They grew up. Most of them grew up in Jewish homes with Jewish families, which means they would have heard prayers, been around prayers, thought about prayers, said prayers many, many times. But it's almost as if they've watched him teach, they've watched him heal, they've watched him do all this kind of stuff. But the one thing that blows them away is the way that Jesus prays. And it's almost like they're sitting around and they're thinking to themselves, we have been doing it wrong for all these years. Jesus, could you just help us and teach us to pray? Now, the truth is, Most of us have never had a class on how to pray. We just kind of learn by seeing other people do it. Right? We listen and we hear and we kind of get a sense of that. And so as these people are gathered around, as the disciples are gathered around, it's interesting to me that we don't have them saying, Lord, could you teach us how you healed that man? Lord, Lord, could you you teach us to speak like you speak? We, We want to speak like you speak. They don't think that. What they think is, Lord... The key to what you're doing here is your prayer. Could you teach us how to do that? Over the next four weeks, we're going to look at prayers that Jesus prayed or taught us to pray in Scripture. And What I want to do is for us to ask Jesus that same question. Lord, could you teach us to pray? And behind that is the realization that perhaps... We don't know what we're doing in prayer. Maybe we never learned. Maybe we're doing it wrong. Perhaps we're not doing it correctly. I remember distinctly going to Brazil a few years ago. It was about a second trip there. And I was with a large group of people. And one of the things that was different about this trip, the first time I went, I was just a college student that had gone on the trip. And this trip, I was in some leadership capabilities. And I got to meet with some of the fellow pastors. Pastors there in Brazil, and as we were meeting and as they were talking, they said, hey, let's do, let's have a quick prayer meeting. And, and I've been to prayer meetings, right? 
Well, I've been to Wednesday night prayer meeting. I had done Wednesday night prayer meeting. I was like, cool, prayer meeting. I like prayer meeting. That means we're going to do like 50 minutes of Bible study and talk about people for a couple of minutes. And they began to pray, and it was unlike any prayer meeting I had ever heard. Now, here's the reality. In Brazil, everything is interpreted. They didn't interpret those prayers, and they didn't have to. There was a passion in their prayers. There was a sense of urgency in their prayers. I did have an interpreter tell me later what they were praying. And what astonished me is that they were praying about things that were on my list, but way down my list. Your kingdom, your will, those people, our community. And I left there humbled by my lack of concern. In prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus is in the midst of a Sermon on the Mount. And we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount on Wednesday nights. And we're going to look at this passage of Scripture. In Luke chapter 11, when they say, teach us how to pray, Jesus comes back with something very similar to what we have here. We're going to look at it from Matthew because of some things that come kind of before. In verse 5 in chapter 6, begins with, whenever you pray, and let's just be honest, one of the reasons that our prayers in general are ineffective is because according to studies and just anecdotal evidence, people aren't praying. Part of the reason people's prayers don't work is because they don't pray, and it's hard to pray effectively when you're not praying. Verse 5 says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they have received their reward. Now, that's probably not the biggest issue we have. I don't remember the last time I drove down through Goodlettsville and saw one of you standing on the street corner yelling prayers at the top of your lungs. I mean, if you did that today, people would think you were a little crazy. That's right. But in their day and time, religious leaders would. They would go out on the edge and they would stand up and they prayed for people to hear them talk. Now, now we, we don't deal with street corners, but we do have this perception that sometimes in public we pray for people to hear us talk instead of praying to actually pray. I've told this story before, but I, I remember growing up, uh, my family, until I was five years old, went to this small country church outside of Dyersburg named Southside. It's where my grandparents were. It's where my family was. And I remember that most of the people in that congregation were just good old country folk farmers. And if you heard them talk, there was no doubt you were in the deep south. You know, I mean, the accents were there. It was just... I mean, they were talking farming all the time. It was just southern to the core. But on Sunday morning, those same southern to the core, draw kind of people would get up and suddenly their language would change to King James English. Oh, dearest Heavenly Father, we are blessed to be here today. You know what I'm talking about, right? It sounds like they'd come straight out of Oxford. The university. Now, how did they learn to pray like that? Because that's how everybody prayed. But they were praying not in a natural kind of flow. They were praying in what they thought would show off their ability to pray. Jesus says, don't be like that. He says, when you pray, go into your private room. Which is just interesting because most of them would not have had a private room. In their day, most of their houses were one room. 
Shut your doors. Some of them didn't even have doors to their houses and pray to your Father who is in secret. But the point here is, just go and pray and be with the Father and let that be enough. And He says, and your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. Now, for a moment, just think about this. Shouldn't it be enough for us that when we go to the Father and we talk to Him and we ask Him and we pray to Him that the Father of the universe, the Creator of all that we know, sees us, knows us, is in tune with where we are. Verse 7 says, When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. He says, and when you pray, go into a secret place, do this privately, and when you pray, don't, don't, don't just come with word after word after word after word after word, thinking that the more words you have, the more God will be responsive to you. In their day and time, uh, I have the scene of Isaiah on Mount Carmel, and as he's on Mount Carmel and he's around, it says that the people wailed and yelled and screamed and cut themselves for hours on end, thinking that in the amount of their words and in the uh, repetition of their heart and in the fervency in their praying that they would be heard from heaven. He says, you don't have to do that. Verse 8 tells us why. Don't be like them. Your father already knows the things you need before you ask him. There are a lot of people whose general impression of prayer is that it is our attempt to say, hey God, hey God, over here, I'm here. Hey God, hey, hey, I don't know whether you know this or not, but um, I kind of got this need right now. I mean, did you hear what she did to me? I mean, did you know what just happened? Hey, hey God, over here, over here, I, I got something I need you to know. As if God is in heaven going, wait, could you slow down a little bit? I need to get that down a little better. He knows, right? The purpose of prayer is not... For us to convince God that we have needs He did not know we have. So what is it? Jesus says, therefore you should pray like this. Now, what follows is one of the most familiar passages of Scripture around. People have said it over and over and over again for centuries, since Jesus said it. And here's the point. I don't believe Jesus is saying, if you will say these words in the exact way I tell you, that somehow in a formulaic, ritualistic sense, that everything you need will come true. That's superstition. That's not prayer. What he's saying is, it's a model. It's a general idea. So don't think by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Don't think just because you can spout that off, that you are somehow doing the prayer God intends for you to do. The thing he just said is, Don't keep speaking words that have no meaning to you. So how do we think that by saying the words he said to say that have no meaning to us, that it makes any difference? But it is a model. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The first thing he wants us to understand And the first thing that we have to do when we come to prayer is we have to be reminded of the one to whom we are going. You you know, whenever you meet dignitaries or whenever you go and meet someone important, sometimes there will be somebody that comes out and says, when you address him, you need to use this title. I was 
working in a church one time, and I accidentally, in this church, called, this is when I was really young, called the pastor by his first name. And in this church, you did not do that. And I was told, you will refer to him as the Reverend Doctor. And then his name, which I will leave to protect the guilty. Here's the thing. When Jesus says, when you come to the creator of the universe, the most significant being that has ever existed, will ever exist, he says the only phrase you have to use to address him is our Father. It's a term of intimacy, and it means that we have access to him. But he says, and in doing that, don't forget how great and holy and awesome and mighty is his name. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In fact, the the phrase there sounds like to us, hallowed be thy name, that your name is holy, which is is true, but what Jesus actually says there is more than that. It is a request. He is saying, Lord, Father in heaven, make your name holy. Make it revered. Make it understood. Let people know how great you are. It is first and foremost to remind us that our task in life, our goal in life, our first priority in life is the praise and honor and glory and reverence due to the name of God Almighty. My life verse is Isaiah 26, 8. It says, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your truth, we wait for you. For your name and your renown are the desire of our souls. Your renown is what we are after. Your renown is what we desire. Your praise, your glory is what we want. The first thing that has to happen for your prayers to even begin to move forward is you have to acknowledge the greatness and the glory and the majesty of the name of Jesus Christ, of the name of God the Father, and say, we want to be the vessels that spread your glory. We're going to declare the greatness of Of our God. And then he says that phrase that we kind of rush past when we're doing the prayer. The Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. You know why we rush past the your kingdom comments? It's because we're pretty concerned about our kingdom. Amen? Amen? I mean, think about most prayers that you hear. It is, Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. So great. Now, let me get on to what I need from you. You're a great God. Yeah, you're good. Okay, now, let me, let me tell you what I need. Let me, let me get my kingdom in order here. But the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're saying your kingdom's more important than my kingdom. And that is really hard to do. Amen? I didn't get any response there. Y'all must be selfless people. Oh, no, we surrender our kingdom all the time. I know you. Been your pastor for six years now, right? Because in my kingdom, who's the king? Me. I like being king. I like getting what I... Deserve. I wish people in my kingdom would understand that I am the one with the best ideas. And if they would just come in line with my ideas, our kingdom would be great because my kingdom 
Everything's good. And when I go to God, I need to let him know, hey, listen, there's some problems in my kingdom. There are some people at the gates that we need to take care of. There are some issues in the house that we got to get rid of. My kingdom, Lord, has some things going on. That's a lot easier to say to the Lord than your kingdom. Regardless of what happens in my kingdom, Lord, regardless of what goes in my personal life, Lord, I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done. Can I tell you this? The purpose of prayer is to surrender your will, not to impose it. The purpose of prayer is to surrender your will, not to impose it. Now, there are a lot of people preaching the opposite. And I'll be honest with you, if you really want to pack a place out, you start preaching that you tell God what you want and you have enough faith and God will give it to you. My kingdom, my kingdom, let me have it. I want it. Give it to me. But we know that doesn't work. Right? If that worked, most of us would have a sports car at 16. Amen? And we'd have a much bigger house than we've got now on a better place of land. And all our problems would be done and we would have a clean bill of health from the doctor. But here's the question. Do we really want a God that bends to my will? No. But we treat Him like that sometimes in prayer. Lord, i got this thing going on in my kingdom, and if you could just take care of that for me, everything would be better. And God is sitting up there going, what? No, it wouldn't. Your kingdom come, your will be done. One pastor has said that your willingness to say that and mean it determines the length of your prayers. He gave an example of Lazarus. You remember Lazarus? He dies. He's in the grave. Jesus comes to them. And Jesus thinks, you know, I know what God's will in this situation is. God wants for Lazarus to be raised. You know what I want in this situation? I want Lazarus to be raised. That's not a big deal. I agree with him. I believe in it. So here you go. And Jesus prays. Do you remember his prayer? Lord, I'm just praying so that these people will know that it's you. Lazarus, come on. Like 20 seconds and he's done because Jesus was perfectly in line with what God wanted at that moment. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane though. How long does it say Jesus prayed? All night. That's a little tougher, wasn't it? Lord, not your will, not my will, but yours. Lord, even if I hate it, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, even if it costs me more than I can imagine, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, even if I disagree with what happens, your kingdom come, your will be done. There is no point in going any farther in prayer until you come to the place where you can say, your kingdom come, your will be done, and mean it. Lord, I'm about to ask you for some things. I'm about to bring some requests to you, but I want you to know before that, I want more than anything, your kingdom to come, your will to be done. I want you to know, I am willing to hear no. I am willing to hear maybe, and I am willing to hear yes. Whatever it means to further your kingdom, I want. Then Jesus starts into the petition part, right? Lord, give us this day our daily bread. What would they have immediately thought of when he said that? What would he have thought of? Food. What kind of food? Well, I mean, what story from the Old Testament would they have thought of? Manna. You remember the story of manna? 
Most of you do, right? They're wandering in the desert. They don't have anything to eat. Jesus, uh, God gives them every day a piece of bread or something, or they called it, what is it? Mystery meat, right? It wasn't meat because they asked for meat later and God says He gave them meat till it came running out of their noses. So whatever this was, and they got it every day. What happened if they stored it for an extra day? Spoiled. Why did God do that for them in the desert? Why did God give them just one day of food at a time? Show dependence, right? And Jesus says when we say give us today our Daily bread, not our week's worth of groceries, but our daily bread. It shows daily dependence on the provision of God. Lord, I need you today to even make it through. Then he says, and forgive us our debts. And I know, I know, when you forgive us, we know that it's not just a horizontal thing. It means that I have to forgive everybody else. Lord, I'm not going to end this prayer until I know that I have forgiveness for you and until I have forgiven everyone in my life that needs forgiveness. That's a little tough, isn't it? Everybody that needs forgiveness, I'm forgiven right now. And then he says, and lead us not into temptation. We can find that stuff on our own pretty well. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. Some of you are looking at me like, is that what your Bible says? What version are you using? That's not what it says. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Here's the thing that I find interesting about that. It means that when we truly come to the Lord in prayer, we have determined we don't want to sin anymore. You see, some people use prayer as a chance to empty their sin bucket so they can go out and fill it up some more. What Jesus says is, it is the time to come and to say, Lord, I'm done. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Here's the thing. Jesus teaches in this short prayer. Now, now I know that the next part is some of your favorite parts, because when people sing it, like when you sang it earlier, it's the part you really build, right? For thine is the kingdom and the power. And the glue, maybe not, all right? You know, you're in a wedding, you're like, oh, that is so beautiful. Look at how they're looking at each other's eyes. I don't know what thine is the kingdom has to do with these two people looking at each other in their eyes right now, but it's beautiful. Now, what's interesting is, if you look at your Bible, mine is in brackets. Is anybody else in bracket that for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever? Amen. Anybody got that in brackets? Footnotes, right? Because in the earliest Greek text, that wasn't there. That doesn't mean it's bad or we shouldn't read it or we shouldn't say it. I think it's a great ending to a prayer. But in the original Greek text, what's interesting is Jesus says, Forgive us, for our, bring us not into temptation, deliver us for evil. And then verse 14, For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, we go back into forgiveness. And some people may have thought, or Jesus may have said in a different place, Hey, you know what? It would be better if this prayer ended with a little you know, kind of doxology right here. What I want you to see is that Jesus gives us a pattern that if we follow, changes or could change significantly the way we pray. And this is the pattern. We've already seen it up on the screen. It's just three things. First of all, we declare God's greatness. 
We surrender our will and we acknowledge our dependence. Another way to remember that, because those first three letters are D-S-A. Declare God's greatness, surrender your will, acknowledge your dependence. Another way to remember that is don't start asking. Because most of us, that's what we get to. Now, even if we don't start with that, we rush to it. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some more prayers of Jesus. But the theme is going to be the whole time. Lord, your prayer or my prayer is that your will be done. So here's my question to you as we close. What's going on in your life right now that you have just a, you just cannot bring yourself to say, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come. Maybe it's a financial situation. Maybe it's a family situation. Maybe it's a relationship, a work situation, career, social setting. And you just cannot bring yourself because you know what that might mean. What is it that you have been unwilling to say, your kingdom come? And what is that preventing from occurring in your life as a reward from the Father? Basically, when we're saying to God, we aren't willing to say, your kingdom come. What we're saying is, we know best and we can work it out. And would you be willing today to say, Lord, I'm ready to just say, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Let's pray.